welcome to KUMC Cultivate, a podcast highlighting community members engaged in supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion on and around the KU Medical Center campus. KUMC Cultivate is brought to you by the School of Health Professions Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. We strive to facilitate understanding and acceptance of persons with diverse abilities, cultures, and ethnicities through education and support. All right. So today's guest, Kiana Thomason, President and CEO of Health Forward Foundation, is a lifelong Kansas Cityan who has dedicated her career to the improvement of health and wellness across the region with a special focus on communities with significant health disparities. Prior to joining the foundation in January, Thomason served as Vice President of Community Health and Health Equity at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas City and spent eight years at Swope Health as the Director of Clinical Operations, Behavioral Health and Program Manager of the Multi-Municipality Mental Health Court. She also served as Deputy Director and Health and Human Services Liaison for United States Senator Jean Carnahan. Welcome and we're so happy to speak with you on the KUMC Cultivate podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. No, we are so excited to have you for this podcast, especially given your role right here in the community. So it just seems to be a perfect fit. Um, I'm going to start with um, one of my favorite questions. I love to learn people's intersectionality. So mm -hmm. if you were able to describe your intersectionality, what would it be? Ooh, you're starting off deep. Uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my intersectionality is uh, first and foremost, um, a woman, a mother, um, a wife, a uh, passionate community advocate, um, a leader uh, in the community that I'm passionate to serve and that I'm from. Um, my intersectionality comes with uh, coming from uh, being native to the experiences of, of poverty and the experiences of what we call the social determinants of health. And it also includes being able to lead solutions uh, that address from whence I've come. Uh, so uh, I appreciate my intersectionality. I think it's been purposeful uh, and certainly useful uh, for uh, such a time as this. So true, absolutely. And touching on that or kind of bridging from that rather, could you share with us an experience when you realized that whether it's your race, your ethnic background or your abilities um, were not equitably recognized, whether that's in your community role or in your professional role? Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's a few that I could point to, but um, one that's coming to mind that's most relevant to, to our listeners is less about my contributions being equitably recognized and more about um, my, uh, my Blackness and um, its intersectionality in healthcare um, and some personal experiences that I had in health um, that posed a threat to my life and the livelihood, the life of my unborn child. So um, I don't know, must've been late 20s. And I was pregnant with my second daughter, Kai. And um, I was experiencing a lot of pain and discomfort 
that having had a first child I knew was not normal pain and discomfort. And so I went uh, right here in Kansas City to one of our local um, hospitals and said, I need help. Something's not right. I need you to check me out. Uh, they didn't do much. Um, they did not attempt to treat my pain. They did not attempt to fully understand my pain, just with surface questions. And they dismissed me uh, without running many tests. They just monitored me and said, oh, it's Braxton Hicks. You'll be okay. Uh, go home. You're not due for another two or three weeks. Um, went home, laid down. And as I began to experience pain gripping my body and even experience losing cognition, I told my husband, take me back to the ED. Something is terribly wrong. We went back, uh, the same two nurses that had helped me, greeted me and uh, monitored me in the observation unit uh, were there, still there. And they said, Ms. Thomason, we told you nothing is wrong with you. And my husband had to demand um, in um, a somewhat of an impassioned way, right. <laughs> she needs to be treated and something is wrong with her and you need to figure it out. Within an hour, I was diagnosed as being septic um, and in danger of losing my life and my child. Now, why do I share that story? I share that story because it is juxtaposed with a national epidemic and crises of black and brown women, specifically black women and native women who die two to four times, two times for native women, four times for black women during our maternal uh, months, pre and during and postpartum um, compared to the four times compared to our white counterparts. Even when you control for socioeconomic status, um, we are still seeing high income women with black women with terminal degrees, PhDs, die medical doctors. At, at medical doctors mm -hmm. at four times the rate of white women in their childbearing years who have high school education. So what it allows us to do is to decenter this narrative of poverty and this narrative of, oh, no access to healthcare and this narrative of low income and really center uh, medical racism and center racism as a public health crisis for black and brown people. So my experience is a microcosm of what is happening all across our country uh, with black and brown women uh, in their maternal uh, months. And it's also experienced uh, with pain treatment for any number of conditions. When Black people encounter medical spaces, we are often discounted. Uh, our pain is. Uh, and this is a well-researched topic. I point uh, your listeners to uh, the um, unequal treatment um, study or publication. It's a landmark publication uh, that really um, elucidates and adds a lot of color to what I'm sharing with respect to the risk that black and brown people carry in medical spaces just because of the fact that we are black and brown. Right. And you touched on a couple different pieces there. Um, not just the, um, the maternal 
uh, care or treatment, but or prenatal care, but also um, kind of like those stereotypical myths that are out there, such as you know pain tolerance, for example, That's right. such as you know black and brown people have a higher pain tolerance, and therefore, you know, we we can dismiss if they have any concerns regarding a pain level or certain um, or certain um, issues they may be having, especially during pregnancy, for example, yes. that uh, our threshold is much higher or stronger. And, um, and those, and that's part of the things that need to be um, debunked and um, kind that's of right. to the side, you know? Because um, right. these a, are not just myths. I want to point out, these aren't just myths. These are well-researched yeah. studies that have empirical evidence. You can look in JAMA, the Journal of American Medicine. Yes. You can look in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine um, and, and look at these studies that are um, really demonstrating that there is unequal treatment in pain treatment. And it's rooted in a belief um, that is false, that Black uh, people have higher pain thresholds and tolerance, that we have thicker skin, we have thicker blood, we don't experience pain the same. And this is being promulgated uh, unfortunately, still, uh, even in some medical schools and in, in, in teaching. And so uh, it's really important that as medical students and as a medical community, who I believe your listeners to be, um, really take some time to assess uh, their own biases and belief systems and what they were taught with respect uh, to treating uh, Black and Brown people. And to do that, well, you have to get proximate uh, to uh, to black and brown people because proximity breeds care. Uh, and when you care, you go the extra mile. Absolutely. And so thank you for sharing such, such a personal experience uh, with us. And in discussing that, I can't help but to think about just what we're facing in our current climate. Um, as we're looking at increased uh, violence or attacks against um, specific communities of color, um, whether that be um, our black and brown communities and of course our Asian American communities. Uh, what are your thoughts re regarding that, especially as we talk about you know, health inequity or health injustice? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and, and thank you for saying health injustice because uh, at Health Forward, we are really focusing on narrative change um, and really moving away from using the word health disparities uh, because it really doesn't assign the value to life um, that um, health injustice does. And more importantly, it, it uh, really reflects that we have the opportunity to create health um, in our decisions around policies and in our practices. So, you know, what's happening with Asian Americans and violence against them in our country is, is appalling, it's an atrocity, um, it's tragic, um, but it, it's not surprising. Uh, many, many think of racism as the predominant social determinant of health. Uh, at least I do, let me say that. So we know, you know lower education, unbanked, uh, lower wealth, um, violence in neighborhoods, um, all of those factors contribute to our health outcomes. But for black and brown people, uh, we are experiencing um, poor health as evidenced by um, shorter life expectancy. Um, so mortality, morbidity, multiple chronic conditions, 
um, and um, even being in danger on our streets, just whether it be driving while black and brown or living while black and brown. And in the case of uh, the Asian Americans in Atlanta or Georgia who tragically lost their lives, it was the case of living while brown. Um, and uh, it is uh, very much akin um, to the black experience uh, in terms of, which I think is of course is, is magnified and goes back centuries, uh, that the loss of life can happen at any time um, just by uh, what would be seemingly a casual encounter uh, with law enforcement. So um, the, the risk factor that we bear for the social influences of health uh, is um, our skin color and not that our race is a problem. Um, racism is a problem with respect to our skin color. And uh, so there's work that we have to do um, to address racism and promote anti-racism on not just the interpersonal level amongst one another, but on structural and institutional levels. And we do that by thinking about how we use our own positions in whatever field that we're in and whatever spaces and spheres that we occupy to make sure that we are applying an equity frame to everything that is in front of us to, to act on, decide, to advance. Um, that has to be at the forefront of our thinking and become our default nature, which takes work. Right, that's so true. And so, and you know, as if we don't have enough going on in the world. Yeah, as if. Um, and we touch on this pandemic and, you know, of course, discussion around COVID-19 vaccine in particular. Uh, what are your thoughts about that as we talk about inclusion, but also look at how COVID-19 has impacted our communities or even just the distribution of the vaccine or having access um, to receiving that vaccine? Do you have any yeah, insights sure. on that? You know, well, just like in many other um, uh, cases, we see um, Black folks have died at two to four times the rate of our white counterparts. So the same statistic with black women and maternal mortality is the same experience with black people in COVID um, in terms of, of uh, dying uh, at an outsized rate. Um, and that goes back to the structural factors that we talked about, um, mostly access to care um, and, and so many other factors. Um, we early on saw inequities in testing uh, because of access to care, <clears throat> excuse me, challenges, um, we are now seeing um, inequities in vaccine uh, distribution that um, we know our state and federal government with a lot of community support and advocacy are being held accountable to ensure uh, that there's equity in distribution. Uh, but there's also uh, vaccine hesitancy and distrust that's present. And that's one thing Health Forward Foundation is addressing. We've been advocating um, since you know, the early days of the crisis for our bi-state area uh, to uh, do better at disaggregating race, ethnicity, and zip code data for all things COVID-19 as a place to start, uh, to incorporate as a practice moving forward. Um, we are also focusing on um, building knowledge uh, in 
trusted messengers in the communities so that they then uh, can speak about the vaccine in an informed way with their community uh, members that are black and brown, um, including the immigrant community, because the studies suggest um, that black folk, brown folk listen first and foremost to physicians and clinicians that look like them. And then secondly, to trusted community people, whether it be pastors, um, whether it be um, community leaders, civic leaders, faith leaders. Um, and so we are working to build uh, knowledge and amplify communication channels uh, so that this messaging um, is, is addressed and we can ensure that those who are dying um, at four times the rate of our white counterparts, uh, that we address that and, and reverse that. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what we're doing. It's important to recognize that this distrust uh, or mistrust that is possessed is not uh, just about this vaccine. It goes back to historical experiences and not just Tuskegee. Uh, that's the first thing people think of when they think of mistrust. We have so many other historical and contemporary experiences as we've already spoken about um, where uh, medical abuses and injustices have occurred that has built this barrier of mistrust. Uh, for black and brown community members. So we have to acknowledge that, we have to own it and we have to correct it. Uh, and there's no better time to start, seeing as though uh, there's higher risk factors in play. Absolutely. So as we kind of um, touched on all these different areas, I guess to kind of tie it all together, my next question would be, where do we go from here? So. I know we all have our different hats. We all have our own different, you know, spaces from which we can impact um, diversity, where we can impact inclusion. But from a healthcare stance, where do you feel like we can go from here? Sure. From a health healthcare perspective, uh, first, health systems have to begin to uh, apply a very deliberate uh, introspection. Um, and focus on how to engineer equity from within. Uh, that first, first starts with uh, senior leadership and governance um, being very strategic um, in ensuring that um, all um, mechanisms within the hospital or the health systems, uh, the workforce, the clinical practices and protocols, the quality improvement um, outcomes and, and processes are all framed through an equity lens. We first need to start at making sure that there are black and brown people in governance on boards and in senior leadership positions within the health system. Uh, we talked earlier about proximity breeding care. Uh, and so black and brown being people being at the table and having their voice, ensuring their voice is included um, number one as advocates, as watchdogs, uh, as well as um, folks, other folks getting proximate to who we are uh, will help and go a long way within the healthcare system. Um, I also think that health systems do really good uh, because of government regulations around quality improvement. So the same core measures that hospitals look at. Um, as their standard measures, the same clinical protocols that are applied need to be um, dissected with race, ethnicity, and zip code. We have the data. 
use the data to understand what are the differential outcomes for things that you're already measuring for people of color um, and establish rigor around um, using that data by race and ethnicity to inform performance improvement opportunities. Uh, that's another place to start. Um, another is to use for nonprofit hospitals, uh, they have community benefit dollars that the IRS um, um, expects because of their nonprofit status that a portion of their revenue will be used for the community benefit to make it plan. Um, those dollars are oftentimes where we see hospitals do community health improvement plans, our community needs assessments. Um, what would be nice is if we begin to see hospitals work with local public health departments, with FQHCs, and with the social sector, the nonprofit community, to begin to address uh, what they're seeing um, in those community needs assessments, transportation, uh, nutrition, food insecurity, all those things come up very often. Uh, they're uh, highly uh, impacted by people of color uh, and those who are not people of color in terms of lower income. So what partnerships can be forged with the nonprofit community? What partnerships can be forged with payers, healthcare payers, to begin to incorporate social care um, in the uh, payment uh, models uh, for health systems and hospitals? So there's so much that can be done. Uh, and so it's important to start with an assessment of self as health systems, uh, focus on um, diversifying workforce, and then applying those quality improvement practices by race and ethnicity and forging non-traditional partnerships in community to address uh, what you see in your data. Absolutely, thank you for that. And so I'm gonna to touch back on one piece as we close out our podcast for today. But um, uh, in listening to the Forward Focus podcast interview that you had a few months ago, you talked about one of your Clifton strengths or Gallup strengths being a relator. And that really uh, caught my ear in that this is something that we've looked at at the School of Health Professions for not just faculty, but uh, for staff and um, some of our students have participated in learning what their top five strengths are. And so in learning this about you, I'm just curious from that space, as a relator, um, <laughs> what would be your message to students um, who are navigating education, healthcare education at that in our current climate, in our current pandemic, I would say, um, what would be your, your words to them? Mm. You know, what, no matter what your strengths are, um, you know, relator is one of mine. Um, Self-awareness is so important. Um, as professionals, as leaders, um, and will be important as clinicians. Uh, and that starts uh, with um, understanding our superpowers uh, and, and our vulnerabilities yeah. and how we amplify our superpowers for equity um, in the treatment process, in the research process, um, and how we... Um, cover and close those vulnerabilities and gaps. Um, and oftentimes that comes by being connected to other people um, who can help show us those vulnerabilities uh, and come alongside us and educate us. Um, for example, just to kind of put handlebars on this for you. Um, as a relator, 
being one of my superpowers and connecting with individuals. I'm not a big crowd and group person, but you give me three or four people and spend a couple of hours with them, we are going to be connected because there's always something that can connect us. I remember uh, when I was a leader uh, at a federally qualified health center here, uh, and we had um, an elderly woman, an older woman, not, not elderly, she was 60, 70s, um, and she was just irate. She was irate. Um, she had been labeled um, as a problem patient, a non-compliant patient. I don't, do not like that term. Um, and she always had a chip on her shoulder and could combust at any moment. <laughs> and so we handled her with kid gloves. And I hadn't had a lot of personal experiences with her. But one day she came in and um, she was irate, doing what she did. Don't know what happened. But I engaged her. And the moment I engaged her, her last name was, let's just say, Henderson. And I said, Mother Henderson. And she looked at me and she paused and she said, yes. I said, Mother Henderson, tell me what's wrong. And she said, well, baby, that's how she started. Mm -hmm. And everybody who was surrounding us looked at her and looked at me and said, what the heck just happened? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I know um, as a black person, and this is about proximity, right? Proximity right. breeds care. In the black community, if you call an older woman mother, you have honored her. Yeah. You have reverenced her. Right. You have esteemed her. No matter who she is, what her walk of life is, and just by calling her mother first, I de-escalated her, I connected with her, mm -hmm. and there was a thread of relatability, there was a thread of proximity, and that that's one of my superpowers. Right. And right. everybody has a superpower like that, that can be used to ensure uh, that we have equitable processes, procedures, and most of all, experiences and outcomes. So I would just encourage the medical students to first know themselves, uh, pursue self-awareness, amplify the superpowers and cover those gaps. That's so perfect. I love that. Superpowers. We all have them. Absolutely. We all have them. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kiana Thomason, for this amazing <laughs> interview. And um, thank you. I'm just so excited for our listeners to um, hear this, as I'm sure it will definitely impact not only their academic journey, but also for those who are in their professional journey as well. Um, you know, we all have that opportunity to contribute towards inclusivity in all the spaces that we live and learn and work in, for sure. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for what you're doing. So appreciate this time with you and looking forward um, to your listeners gleaning what they can. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right.